if assessment does not build hope for kids, we will lose them. It's really critical that we keep them hopeful and in the game. You are listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. And today we're talking about assessment, which is a hot topic. It is a hot topic. And I don't think that anyone would argue that assessing in order to better understand where students are or what they understand is a bad thing. But I think if it isn't used for this really powerful learning, then it can feel like a waste of time and resources that do take away from the opportunity to engage kids in meaningful practice. Right. And since education leaders are always looking for good resources to help strengthen school-wide and district-wide practices, educational publisher and professional development provider Solution Tree has created an assessment center to help schools and districts develop and implement assessments that positively impact students. The center offers services around professional learning, staff evaluation systems, and action research projects all to help support the implementation of powerful quality assessment practices. So Tom recently spoke with Cassandra Erkins, Tom Schimmer, and Nicole Dimich-Vogley, who are the assessment experts leading the center about its purpose, vision, and what makes it unique. Here's more from their conversation. This is Tom Vanderark with the Getting Smart podcast. We're with our friends from Solution Tree today. Solution Tree has launched an assessment center to provide uh, schools and teachers with uh, books and professional development resources on assessment. Uh, today, we're joined by Cassandra, uh, Nicole, and Tom, who are going to tell us a little bit more about the launch of the center. As with every profession, we learn more over time, and we have more and more research and broader research, more on the international level, about what works to support learners and what works to support teachers in the learning process. So assessment needs to be upgraded from some of our original understandings, and we want to make sure that we are being as current and as relevant for our teaching staff as we possibly can be. The center has six research-based tenants used as tools to achieve hope, efficacy, and achievement for students. These include student investment, productive communication, planned assessment architecture, purposeful assessment, instructional agility, and accurate interpretation. Here's Cassandra sharing more details on each of these and how they're used to guide the center's services. So the tenants are really used as a, as a tool to help us get to hope, efficacy, and achievement. And each tenant is research-based, and they create as a comprehensive whole the big picture. One of them involves student investment. We, ha- we know we have to use assessment to get kids interested and wanting more and participating fully and owning their learning. One of them is about how we communicate the results so that everybody can have a productive response to those results and continue moving forward. One of them is about understanding the purposes of of assessment, formative and summative, and how they are interdependent to support hope and efficacy and achievement. One of them is about understanding the architecture, knowing what you are assessing before you ever begin teaching and what the method needs to be. And then another is about being instructionally agile, having teachers respond and maneuver based on emerging evidence in the classroom. And the last one, the interpretation of assessment results, indicates that as everybody's interpreting it, it has to be accurate, accessible, and reliable information. Those six pieces need to interplay together in order for a teacher to be able to generate hope, efficacy, and achievement in each learner. That is a, that's a high bar of assessment literacy. Is it your view that every teacher should be an assessment expert? 
That's one of the reasons we've created this center. We're trying to support teachers in doing that. Assessment and instruction are two sides of the same coin. If teachers do not understand what they are assessing and how they are assessing, they will have difficulty with instruction. They will be engaged in curriculum coverage rather than deep learning. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, and today's episode is brought to you by Solution Tree, who's empowered K-12 educators since 1998 to raise student achievement through a wide range of services and products, including educator conferences, customized district solutions for long-term professional development, books, videos, and online courses. And up next, Tom and Tom talk about the Assessment Center, created for educators to develop assessment literacy across schools and districts that ensure every student, regardless of background, is college and career ready. Tom, it's an exciting time in assessment. There's a lot that's changing with the, the shift to digital, uh, with more focus on on standards-based with early movement towards competency-based. How do you see the assessment landscape? Well, I think we we continue to see uh, assessment evolve. And so I think the good news is that in 2016, we, we probably are as sophisticated as we've ever been in our understanding of assessment. However, we recognize as a center and as a group and as we travel around working with different schools and school districts that there is still much work to be done in refining our understanding. But I think what we're seeing now uh, is not so much brand new sort of ideas that have never uh, been heard before, but we're, we're seeing ideas coming together. So we're starting to realize that assessment plays a major part in developing a classroom culture of learning and that assessment used to be seen as something separate that was done to students and now we recognize that assessment is relationship building and how teachers handle assessment in fact says more about the relationships they have with their students than anything else. We know now that assessment plays a major role in helping students become more self-regulatory about their learning and so students being invested which is one of our tenants uh, being invested in their learning throughout the process, not just at the end and taking ownership, but being invested in the process of understanding learning goals, being able to recognize the discrepancy between where they are and where they need to be during the learning, and then being able to respond appropriately once they recognize uh, what is left to be done. Uh, so we see relationships, we see developing a culture of learning. These things in assessment that used to be separate are now coming together and helping us understand. Now, as you lay that on top of the most recent evolution of assessment, we're seeing a movement toward uh, more performance assessment. And th that's for two major reasons. One is the overall depth of knowledge. And so we're recognizing that for students to go past that surface level understanding, we're going to have to move away from multiple choice or selective response questions and get into more uh, explanatory or deeper sort of performance assessments that allow students to demonstrate the full breadth and depth of their understanding. The tangents off of that in terms of performance assessment relate to both project-based learning and the assessment of 21st century skills or competencies. So as we put kids into authentic situation, ask them to do project or problem-based learning through a collaborative process, being able to assess that requires a lot of finesse and understanding about assessment from the teacher's perspective. So in layman's terms, it's easy to assign a project. It's much more difficult to assess it. So having a sophisticated understanding of how to develop performance criteria, uh, how to describe quality along a trajectory is a critical component if we're going to move to that more project or problem-based learning. And then on top of that, 
the 21st century skills in terms of ideas, for example, critical thinking or teaching kids to be more collaborative are going to require teachers, again, to be able to develop sophisticated criteria. So anything can be assessed as long as we understand what we're assessing and what the criteria is. So if we're assessing the student's ability to be collaborative, that has a very different criteria than simply producing a group project. We we would be able to articulate that and be able to observe that. Now, the, the biggest issue that we face now in assessment is most certainly the change in legislation. And so the ESSA that has recently passed in December, I think was passed in December or signed into law in December 2015, has really, you know, shifted things away from uh, not entirely, but certainly shifted our focus when it comes to moving from No Child Left Behind now into ESSA, which, you know, with No Child Left Behind, ESSA still maintaining the ideas of accountability and and closing the gap and having high standards of performance. But what the newness is for a lot of schools and school districts is the local responsibility or the potential for local influence and control. And so as responsibility, as local control begins to evolve, states, districts, and even schools are going to have to have the capacity to develop more authentic tasks, more authentic performance assessments that really get to the depth of understanding so that we can look across a district or across a jurisdiction. Uh, so it is an exciting time in assessment that we've never been more sophisticated, but at the same time, there are many layers that we had, didn't have to deal with you know, 15 or 20 years ago that we now understand that require our assessment literacy to make sure that we're on top of what we're doing with students. Tom, you said something really remarkable that, uh, that you think an assessment can say more about the relationship a teacher has with students than anything else. That I'd love to have you describe that in more detail. How and why uh, would that be the case? Well, I think, you know, for me, and, and I think, and I, and I know that, uh, that we, we all echo sort of the same ideas, that what we've learned over the years is that assessment is not just this separate experience that kids have. You can't silo assessment from, learning cannot be separated from its social context. And so, as a result, you, you have to recognize that everything we do either contributes to or takes away from the collective and the individual relationships we have with kids. Right. And so as an example, uh, you, can, you can take it all along the way. If I recognize through assessment that a student has a particular learning deficiency or some skill deficiency that needs to be addressed, and as a teacher, if I don't respond to that, what does that say about how much I truly care about learning? If I just simply use assessment to identify the discrepancies between where students are and where they need to be, but it, but I don't act upon that information, or I don't provide feedback to the students on how they can close that gap, what does that say about my true commitment to that child's learning? Uh, on the back end of it, from a grading perspective, I can say that I have a classroom that's all about learning, and then a student can hand me something a day after they wanted it, and my response in that situation, whether or not I'm about learning or whether I'm about the application of penalties, will say more about my relationship than whether or not when a student enters the room, I say, how was your weekend or how are you doing? Or, right. hey, I used to teach your older sister. So to me, assessment sits at the core of the experience in school. And therefore, all those other things we do are peripheral. They're important. Don't get me wrong. They're you know building rapport, building relationships. But you can undermine all of that by handling right. assessment in a way that's counterproductive. Nicole, you've written extensively about designing quality assessments. How do you see the um, important steps in delivering quality assessments? Absolutely. So as we as we move from the bigger picture of creating this culture of learning and building confidence and hope for students, 
the design process that I've been engaging with teachers with has really been around five different phases. And it really builds on what both Tom and Cassandra have talked about. So the five phases are really fairly simple. So it takes a probably a more complex view of assessment or sophisticated think of assessment and try to, to, to really put it into the how-to. How do, we, how do teachers navigate this um, within the rhythm of their work? So phase one is really sitting down with an assessment and saying, what, choosing the standards, choosing what we want the learning to be. And this is to really focus on assessment being about gathering information. The other part of phase one is choosing the learning is, is all beyond just choosing the learning is trying to find an engagement. Um, what is the relevance? What is the meaning? Um, what's the authentic scenario that students are going to um, to engage in so that we can gather information in a way that isn't just um, a score or a grade, but it really gives us a sense of um, the why the students are engaging in this learning. Phase two then moves into taking that those standards and teasing out or analyzing those standards to figure out what are all of the, the criteria, the learning targets, the learning goals that we want to assess throughout this assessment process and this assessment task that we're designing. Phase three then moves into if this is what we want students to learn, then we start to either choose items or tasks or tools that we'll have students engage in to gather information on the learning that we are focused on. Um, and that's where we get to really be creative and either find different tools and tasks or create them to give students this engaging um, experience where we can gather information about where students are at. And then also it can tell us where students need to go next. So phase three is really the, the planning and making sure that whatever we choose or use in our assessment is going to give us information on learning um, and not just be this isolated score or feedback that doesn't inform something very important. And then phase four is, is really where the nuts and bolts of design, where we pull in what does a quality item look like, a task, a rubric. And, and teachers then can think of through the technology tools they have and, and how they might use those to gather that kind of information. And then finally, phase five, this is where I think this is probably one of the phases that makes um, this design process different from others, is that right in the context of design, we're thinking about the role of students. So phase five is where we talk about, okay, given this assessment information, how are we going to communicate to students where they're at, what they know, what they need to work on. Um, and it's in students getting better information about their learning that they can start to reflect on what do I know, not just having the teacher understand where students are at, but also having students be able to get something, um, get that feedback and know where to go with it. Um, so for example, to kind of build on Cassandra's example um, in the math, if a student gets 63%, they often don't, can't describe that in terms of what that means for their learning. So one of the things that we advocate for in this process is making sure that, that students understand what is that 63% or what are those points or what does that score, that standard score mean in terms of their learning? Um, which areas are they strong in? Which areas um, do they need more work? So it's not just in general, but it really gives them more specific targeted information so that they can um, move their learning forward. So the motivation and engagement with that is kids get more power when they get better information about what they understand and where they need to go next. Are there examples of involving students in that design process? Involving students and having students invest in their learning. Um, it, can, it can be anything from where students are looking at um, a set of criteria and they're looking at their own work and determining in their own work 
what are they strong in and what areas do they need to work on. It can be things like students tracking their progress over time. Student investment can also, and student reflection can also be things like uh, that students are reflecting on what during the assessment process shut them down and what helped them keep going. So they right. start to really regulate their own thinking around that. We write a lot about uh, project-based learning and and uh, in many cases having a student co-construct a project with a, a teacher and a team. And, and you can imagine in that situation, a, a student and a teacher walking through each of these steps together to choose learning targets and to develop a rubric. Absolutely. The co-construction of that, when we're really clear about learning and how students start to generate criteria to see and understand quality, they can even more deeply understand their own learning. Right. Then they really do own the, the learning outcomes at a much deeper level. That's so true. And even young students can, can do this. I watched a kindergarten classroom co-construct criteria on what does quality writing look like. And so it can be incredibly powerful, even as young as <laughs> those younger students, to be able to do that. Uh, Tom, when I was a young superintendent, I got, uh, got in trouble over uh, standards-based grading uh, sort of done poorly uh, for a lot of reasons. It's a real challenge to connect instruction and assessment and, and grading, or more broadly, the reporting uh, that is shared with students and parents and uh, community. How do you connect the dots there? Well, it, it begins by answering a fundamental question is what what do we want grades to represent and certainly you know there's a lot of talk about the relevancy or the lack of relevancy around grades as they exist today and i and i would tend to agree if we're talking about grades that are determined or calculated through some of our old constructs the way that we've done traditional grading in the past whether it's the point accumulation the averaging of old and new evidence the inclusion of all student, not just student proficiency, but student behaviors and attitudes and how hard they've worked and all. If every, if the grade is trying to be everything to everyone, then it certainly becomes something that is increasingly meaningless. Uh, and so the first agreement is to, to understand what we want grades to represent. And in a standards-based instructional environment, which is within which we work now, I would hope that we would want grades to fully reflect a student's proficiency as it relates to the standards. Uh, especially despite how low or slow they started. Uh, that would be a very different way of approaching it. And so as you work backwards, you start to realize that if that's what we want to reflect and communicate, then it works ourselves. we work ourselves backwards in a way that helps us understand the alignment. So standards-based grades are always more efficient and effective when you have standards-based evidence of learning. And those those examples of standards-based evidence are derived from standards-based or standards-organized assessments, which are the byproduct of standards-based instruction. And so it begins in a classroom with teachers understanding what they're teaching and, and what that looks like for students. And so as uh, Nicole was talking earlier about developing criteria and, and, and you were talking about co-constructing criteria, it's that transparency and in instruction about what is our learning goal, what is our success criteria, so what does reaching the learning goal look like, and, and then how do we teach along a trajectory or a progression that allows students to go from the most simple understanding to the most sophisticated. And then we assess along those lines around standards, and then we make sure that whatever system we use to report, and whether that's a letter of the alphabet, a number, a description, 
whatever schools choose to do, that it is a full reflection of where the student is in their learning at that given moment. The interesting thing I find nowadays is that when you when you say it forward, when you say standards-based grading, it tends to create quite a bit of anxiety in some people. And certainly there's a lot of sort of tension, parents and community, et cetera. But when we really think about it, if you would were to refer to it backwards and say grades based on the achievement of standards, it seems like a no-brainer and seems like common sense. And so one of the things I think we try to help people understand is that standards-based grading isn't this monster. It, in fact, is what we should have been doing since the mid-1990s with the introduction of the standards movement. We have right. had standards in education for the better part of two decades, if not longer. But as far as mandated standards, you could safely go back 20 years. And yet we still have grades that are, are determined through task types. So we have grade books that are organized by tests, quizzes, assignments, projects, even homework and other assignments. And in all of those tasks, you have the same standards represented multiple times, but kids never get full credit for their learning because we take old assignments, average them with recent quizzes, and then the most recent tests to come up with some middle number. And so that decision about what we want grades to reflect will actually bring clarity to the process as we sort of plan backwards and instruct forward. I guess the question is, how do you bring parents along, or more specifically, what, what kinds of information do you envision uh, sharing with parents? I, I think, first of all, the, the idea of just asking the question is a critical one because in our travels, we certainly see that the communication with parents is something that inadvertently gets overlooked. And so making sure that parents, whether you're a classroom teacher just beginning to do something on your own, maybe revamping your homework policy or your reassessment policy, or if you're a school or school division that's thinking about moving in a particular direction, bringing the parents in on the process before things happen and letting them know what's changing is a critical piece. So just just even being aware of that. Now, what I think helps parents understand where we're going is there's two two big understandings that I think are important. First is many parents don't see don't recognize and it, and it's not I'm not blaming them and it's not their fault. I mean, they're not educators, but we have to help them understand the modern assessment paradigm. That the fact that school doesn't look like it did 25, 30 years ago, because we now teach to more sophisticated standards, and there is a, uh, a much greater precision with which teachers are supposed to achieve certain outcomes with their students. And so this modern sort of assessment understanding and this standards-based instructional environment is why assessment, instruction, and grading have to evolve. That, that's a critical, a critical piece for parents to understand, that, that, that evolution. And so the second piece would be just understanding that the way in which they have received information in the past actually wasn't as clear and precise as they thought it was. Now, parents will think they know what an A or a B means when, in fact, a B could mean a student who has A-level proficiency and C-level attitude, or it could be someone who has C-level proficiency and A-level attitude, but we, we sort of bring that all together and come up with some middle average. Right. And so related to that is the clarity around the grades, but helping parents understand that just because your characteristics and behaviors and attitudes are not included in your proficiency grade, it's not that they're being ignored. In fact, most schools would make the argument that they're holding kids more accountable and teaching them more about those other skills that are necessary to be responsible, to be respectful, to show work ethic, that you have to demonstrate those. Because when we talk to parents, we, we often tell parents, you know, the proficiency grade will get your child into college, 
But it's those behavioral attributes, their responsibility, their work ethic that will keep them in that college and allow them to graduate from that school. And so, so Tom, the separation you, of oh, the so proficiency of behaviors. Yeah, yeah, you're suggesting that you separate out um, right. that form of information. That's helpful. Exactly. Because part of the problem that we have in execution, in implementation, is the separation, you know, removing, say, the behavioral missteps from determining a proficiency grade. The worry is that schools are ignoring the idea of turning things in late. And that's that could not be further from the truth. Our job is to address the lack of punctuality, the lack of responsibility, the lack of respect, the lack of work ethic. Address it from an instructional approach, not from a punitive approach. If a student, if we recognize a student is acting irresponsibly and is consistently turning things in late, the, the only thing that will prepare them for life after high school is if someone or some group of pe- adults intervenes and teaches this student how to be more responsible in advance of a deadline. So it's those fears that I think help, the easing those fears that help parents understand that um, the sky will not be falling if we move to standards-based grading because you will now have greater clarity on where your, your child is in, in, because the grade will be based on the achievement of standards. Right. And we will hold kids more accountable for those behavioral characteristics that will serve them well as young adults. That's helpful. Uh, Solution Tree is known for its leadership on professional learning communities. And Cassandra, you've written extensively about uh, leading PLCs. What's the leadership role in leading for quality assessments? Well, I would say there's two parts here. The first part is that when teams work together in the process of designing and developing the common assessments that PLCs require, we can influence each other's assessment literacy and we begin to look at student work and we interpret it differently. We challenge each other's presuppositions and we come to some more clarity and better information to support the teacher and the learner in the process. So setting teams up to have those conversations and giving them the time and the tools to be able to look at their assessments with great care is critical to their success. But certainly, as we talk about building assessment literacy among everybody and really updating our practices, it's important for our principal leaders to to lead by modeling. So each of the formative assessment strategies that are reported in research to be high quality, for example, having kids know their targets, having kids co-create quality criteria, having kids get descriptive feedback, that works for all learners. So when principals lead by modeling, having teachers know what are their targets for them, have them co-create criteria for quality in the work they're doing with assessment, give them very descriptive feedback. Those are the same processes that will help teachers not only understand it, they'll experience it, and then principals are leading by modeling. Nicole, what are the services of the assessment center and who are the likely clients? We have really created a continuum of services and access points for um, educators. One of those access points is district leadership will be able to find multiple opportunities to, number one, kind of assess where they're at in their assessment work, um, how their assessment work is creating this culture of learning. Um, We also have coaching available across the board to help school and district leadership 
um, develop the capacity, develop, implement, and implement um, some of these assessment practices that will create hope efficacy for our students. So at the school level, um, there are lots of different specific training and workshops. So school leaders will be able to engage and look at where do they want to go? Do they want to focus on assessment design? Do they want to focus on using assessment well? Do they want to focus on developing that standards-based mindset? Are we looking at common assessments? So school leadership and teams can engage in training to build that capacity and that assessment literacy to create a culture of learning. We also know that we will have um, teams and individual teachers who will benefit from um, coaching and training around wherever they're at in their assessment journey. Um, when they want to think about, if, and all of these things really are grounded in our six tenets. So as we want students to be more invested in their learning at all levels, um, we provide the training, the coaching, and the ongoing work um, to support schools and educators in creating this, this culture of learning. So I would just toss it and see, Tom, Cassandra, do you want to add anything else to this idea of, of who are going to be most likely our clients? I would I agree wholeheartedly with what you said. It's it's teachers, it's administrators, it's anybody who works with the teaching and learning process from targeted or customized workshops to broader reviews of their assessment assessment system. We've tried to offer the full range of services. So Cassandra, if a district wanted a customized approach for its teachers, is that the sort of thing you could deliver? Absolutely. Ourselves and every one of our associates is trained to, uh, we would be modeling the use of assessment if we did that, right? So we go in and we try to assess where they are and then support them specifically in meeting their needs. Uh, Cassandra, Nicole, and Tom, you guys have each written some uh, wonderful books on this topic. You can find them at solution-tree.com. Uh, you'll find more information about the assessment center there. Uh, we we really love the, the framework that you guys have laid out. It's exciting to, to hear about a team uh, not just focused on efficacy and achievement, but uh, hope. That sense of agency is so important. So we appreciate your work and appreciate you being on the Getting Smart podcast. Thanks Thank so you very much. much. Thank you so much to Cassandra, Nicole, and Tom for joining us and to Solution Tree for sponsoring this podcast. And thanks so much to our producer, Troy Lund, for making us sound so good. For more information on the Assessment Center and its customizable professional development services, visit solutiontree.com backslash S-T-A-C. And we just launched season two of the Getting Smart podcast, so be sure to check us out on iTunes. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovation and learning, check out our blog at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Megan and Kat signing off. <laughs>